Thank you for downloading our podcast. Luke's goal is to write an orderly account for his friend Theophilus. His aim is to make sure Theophilus is confident about what he has been taught. So what is Luke trying to confirm for Theophilus? What does Luke tell us about Christ's importance in history? Please join us as we seek to answer these questions as we go through Luke's Gospel. We learned last time that Jesus, in terms of being the God-man according to his humanity, had to study, had to learn, uh, he had to uh, contemplate and, and learn about the gospel and learn what the prophets were saying. We see that as part of his humility, as Luke tells us that he, he grows in his wisdom, his understanding. Now it's time, because we left off with Christ there continuing to learn. We talked about the Torah clubs that would meet together and, and talk about the implications of Torah and what it means. So we left off with Christ, basically the implication that Christ just continued uh, to engage in this process. Well, now we move to the point in the gospel where we turn the page, where Luke is telling us it is time for the holy war to go forth. Now, when we say that, we don't always think about the mission of Christ or John the Baptist as a holy war, do we? Because we think in terms of a holy war, what it means. It's guns, it's violence, it's unrest, it's upheaval, it's people fighting with other people quite literally. But we have to remember the long game that God plays. He makes promise, exit of Eden. He's going to consummate that promise. And he does so in history. And so what we saw, even with the birth of Christ, if we recall back around Christmas time when we were looking at Luke, we saw the myriad of angels and how it's presented as a heavenly host, the heavenly army, announcing and praising God and ascending of Christ, where the Lord right there could have crushed Rome with a mere command of the angels to engage in war and to accomplish the Lord's endeavor of establishing true peace on earth. But that wasn't the Lord's plan. We find that the way in which the Lord engages in holy war is very subtle. And it's something that takes place almost in, in a sense where it's unknown. It kind of flies below the radar. And it's really an important identity as we look at Luke's gospel and other gospel accounts. Because the issue is not so much who Christ is. We know who Christ is. He's a God-man. And whether we believe it or not, the reality is he is Christ. He is God. God does what God does. And whether we affirm it or not doesn't validate or invalidate what God does. God is God. But what we learn in the Gospels that's very important is who do we say Christ is? What do we identify and comprehend of Christ as his people? And again, Christ is going to do what Christ does. I, I don't affirm him or deny him. I, I could be up here, preach against Christ, and at the end of the day, it does nothing to harm him. His work, his identity is beyond my words. Now, obviously, I want to be in line with Christ. 
And this is really, when we look at Luke's gospel and what John the Baptist is preparing us for, is to understand and wrestle with that question of who do we say Christ is? How does God initiate this holy war? Where am I in terms of this holy war and what's taking place? And so as we look at this with the very debut of the Holy War, where John the Baptist is the one who's basically announcing the arrival of it, we find the Holy War debut, which leads to an unlikely division, and lastly, where there is a clear priority that John has. Even John himself needs to be realigned and reprioritized, as we will see in the Gospel. Going on then in terms of the Holy War debut, we have a, a setting of a scene. So we have some individuals who are mentioned. I'm not going to go through all the individuals, but just kind of placing this in a rough uh, time frame. Where Luke, remember, he's writing this orderly account, so Theophilus may have confidence in what he believes now and what he's been taught. And we've talked about how Theophilus sort of becomes a, a pun in Luke's gospel because his name means lover of God. And so as we receive this gospel, the, the desire is that we become lovers of God, right? Again, it doesn't matter what I fundamentally believe about God. It doesn't change God. God is God. It's for me to be brought in line with who God is. That's the fundamental call of the gospel, right? So when we have Tiberius Caesar, who's the first one listed, this is one where we see him as a second emperor in Rome. His dates are roughly 14 BC to 37 AD. So this one, as we uh, think about him, his significance as he appoints Pontius Pilate. Uh, people have disagreements whether he's officially a governor, whether he's sort of a step-in individual, sort of a, a puppet master of Rome, which is pretty likely. If he's just an experienced soldier who's kind of uh, climbed up the ranks, which is pretty likely as well. Whatever the case, he is someone who is entrusted uh, to rule over uh, Judea and, and to be uh, appointed to this task. Now Pontius Pilate, when we think about his identity, he's from about 26 to 36 AD. Pontius Pilate, sometimes the Gospels, when we read about him, we can see him as sort of a, a flippant man, kind of unpredictable, maybe a little bit weak. Um, sometimes we can get that impression, depending on the Gospel that we read. Or his reputation, you know, from Josephus and Philo, is a little different. He's known to be rather cruel. He's known to be rather divisive. Uh, he's also one who is rather corrupt. And so, when you look at Pontius Pilate and, and, and his world peace, what, what do you have in, in, in this scenario? Up to this point, you basically have a world ruler who's succeeding another one who is basically an emperor, moving to another emperor. We have an official who is uh, sort of flippant in the sense that he's going to do what's convenient for him and what's going to maintain peace and keep people the most under control. We have Herod the Tetrarch. As we have Herod the Tetrarch, this is uh, Herod Antipa, Antipas. <laughs> Probably pronounced that wrong, but anyway. He rules over the fourth part of the region. Uh, he is one that he would be over Galilee uh, and Perea, which would be home of John the Baptist. And so he is an important figure in terms of this gospel account. 
Uh, he is not one who's really in love with Christ, kind of amused with Christ, which is what we also find. I know uh, somebody I visit, I appreciate uh, the reminders that I receive, whether you're a fan or a follower of Christ, right? You can be a fan of Christ, a lot of fans, a lot of people that seem as a helpful guru, and other ones that truly want to follow him. Uh, Herod would sort of be a fan, sort of a guy who's kind of curious. This individual does some kind of cool magic tricks, and it's kind of interesting. I like to see him perform one of those things. Is sort of where he is. We're not really seeing him as a son of God or Messiah. Philip the Tetrarch, he's also a son of Herod, married to Cleopatra of Jerusalem, not the famous Cleopatra. Uh, he rules Caesarea Philippi. And he's one uh, who's involved in the controversy of John the Baptist's head uh, with um, basically of the daughter of uh, Herodias who's married uh, to Philip the Tetrarch and she's the one who requests John's head. And so as we're setting the scene, we, we find that there's a lot of nepotism going on here and, and family trees that don't really have a whole lot of forks in them to put it delicately. Uh, so as we look at this family, we, we sort of see that there's a lot of stuff uh, that Jesus and John the Baptist are up against, right? There's a lot of family commitments, a lot of politics going on here. Uh, this isn't something that's really world peace in the sense that it's truly desiring to honor God. Now we have two high priests who are mentioned. We have Hannas and Caiaphas. Now, Hannah says he's a high priest. We read of him in John 18, involved in the interviewing of Christ. Uh, he was actually uh, deposed, and we find that he's also kind of doing stuff uh, behind the scenes, and he's deposed by Rome. And so Caiaphas is his son-in-law. So now we find not only is there a lot of nepotism in terms of Rome, there's a lot of nepotism uh, and favoritism in terms of even... Uh, Israel doing their thing, uh, that there's a, a lot of family connections that will sort of influence someone's view about things. So Hanas is still sort of doing his thing behind the scenes. Caiaphas seems more the sort of the puppet uh, guy on, on the front lines here. So what this does is it dates the time of John the Baptist, as Luke sets it, roughly about 27 to 29 A.D., uh, putting this into context here when Christ makes his debut. And so when we have this, this time frame with John the Baptist, we might think, well, how is someone going to triumph in this? <laughs> right? I mean, there's a lot of things going against you. You have powerful people connected to more powerful people and a lot of favoritism going on. Well, we have that the word of the Lord comes to John the Baptist, or son of Zechariah. Uh, so we know Zechariah, he was a priest who went into the temple, he was mute, had to name John John, uh, communicating the grace of God and these sorts of things. So when we have the word of the Lord coming to John the Baptist, or John, son of Zechariah, as he goes forth in this mission, this is a formula we have with other prophets. So John's not engaging in this mission on his own initiative. It's not John saying, well, maybe it's time for me to make my debut and, and do what I need to do. No, this is John being compelled by the Lord to do what he does. 
And as he goes forward in his mission and he's preaching uh, to the Jewish individuals and calling people to repent as we find him in the wilderness in the setting by the Jordan and baptizing people for repentance. We may say, well, why is this mission so significant? Well, we know that as John is doing this, that we have this uh, purification rite that's going on with this baptism. We can find in Leviticus 14, Numbers 12, for instance, that when there were individuals who, for instance, uh, had leprosy, were cleansed from leprosy, they were prescribed these ritual cleansings. Uh, we find Paul and Peter talking about uh, the baptism through the Red Sea or the Red Sea event as being a baptism. We have another picture of this in the Jordan River. And so what this is, is doing is identifying, I would argue, in a temporary time of calling people to be aligned with the Messiah. One is either aligned in the Messiah, uh, finding their cleansing in him, or not. Because that's really what baptism is symbolizing. It's symbolizing and pointing out to the true God of heaven who uh, gives new life and moves people from life to death, right? So either swallowed by the sea or delivered through the sea. And so when, when we consider this, this picture of John preparing the way for Christ, He's telling us that the national identity of Israel is not going to be lasting much longer. And the call is for them to be identified with the true seed of the woman, the true triumphant one who is entering history as a Messiah. John then being in the wilderness. We say, well, why is this setting so important? Well, as we begin to, to think about the implications of the wilderness and what this means in this particular setting, right? Rather ominous. Roman officials, pretty connected, very much connected, not only for political ties, but even family ties. You have Jewish leaders who are pretty prestigious working with Rome who are also tied uh, to prestigious family lines. And so you look at this and say, whoa, how is God going to do this? Sounds a lot like Babylon, sounds a lot like Assyria, these sorts of things with Israel in exile. And it communicates to us, Israel is in exile under the authority of Rome. But we have here a citation of Isaiah 40. And the promise that Isaiah makes here in Isaiah 40 is that there is one crying in the wilderness. So it's not just a crazy man. But it's a voice proclaiming something, the word of God. It's making the way for the Lord. And so there's this picture of a, a recreative event, of a clear path, a clear line going to a place of rest, a, a deliverance from a land of bondage to a place of rest and peace, right? Mountains made low, valleys filled in. You're going to look and you're going to see the clear road, the clear pathway to have life. Now, in the other Gospels, we have a, a citation basically of Isaiah 40, verse 3, and only 40, verse 3. And so it's making clear to us the significance of John fulfilling this mission of Isaiah, calling God's people out of exile and to truly embrace the true Messiah. But Luke goes on and cites Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. And so he wants to take more of what Isaiah is saying and cast John in this different light and also set a stage for a Messiah. 
As he's setting the stage for the Messiah, the thing that becomes emphasized is all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now this is close. I'm not going to go into all the details, the distinction of the Septuagint. But what we find with the significance of what Luke is doing here is he wants to emphasize the universal nature of Christ's mission, right? And so for Matthew, Matthew emphasizes this was done to fulfill, this was done to fulfill, this was done to fulfill. He'll cite a prophet, he'll show what Christ does to fulfill, showing how Christ's mission is first to the Jews, and then it's going out in a great commission to the Gentiles. For Luke, the setting of Christ is not only son of man, not, or not only son of David, not only son of God, but also son of Adam. And so he wants to cast Christ as the last Adam, the, the definitive Adam who comes to secure this universal kingdom that is true peace. Now then, we see Isaiah, or we see John presented as the Elijah-like prophet, uh, presented as the Isaiah-like prophet, fulfilling these words in the wilderness. And we say, what is the wilderness? Well, we remember from our study in Hosea, the wilderness has a couple points that are significant. First, it is a place of testing. We see this in Hosea. We see this in Hebrews. When we went through Hebrews 3 to 4, we saw how Israel was tested in the wilderness to see what they were made of. But what's the purpose of the testing? I mean, Hebrews gives a warning of people dying and falling away in the wilderness, right? I mean, so there is a, a cleansing of the community, if you will. But the other thing about the wilderness, as Hosea says, is that the Lord will speak tenderly, sweetly to his people. He will woo his people. It's a place of, of recreation, reshaping, rebuilding, and realigning the community that God has set apart and called to himself. So John being in the wilderness is a significant thing. Because right here we're going to see a division in the people of God, aren't we? There's going to be those who come to him and say, I want to undergo this cleansing ritual. I see that there's something more than just keeps me at a, at a separate point from God and is, is keeping me from the glorious God of heaven. It's my sin. I need the Lord. There's others that are going to look upon this and say, I'm part of the covenant. I'm part of the identity of being part of Abraham. And as I have Abraham, the prophets, as my father, I'm fine. I don't need this kook, this, this guy who's going around proclaiming these things about some carpenter who's some rabbi or something, right? I mean, that's kind of how it gets dismissed in the gospel account. Now, again, I'm not saying this is what I believe, and I'm not saying that's an appropriate response to Christ. I'm just saying that is a response that individuals had to Christ that is clearly sinful. Going on then, as we think about this, say, okay, so here's John... We have the setting. How does John divide the community then? Well, this is where we look at verses 8 through 14. And we find now that John, the Elijah-like prophet, think of Malachi 4 verse 5, the one who goes out with his purification fire going out to cleanse the people. We think that if, if this is John, he's going to have some intrinsic power as he goes in this place of renewal, this place of testing, then he's going to do these wonderful things. But we have these, this declaration that we have crowds coming out to visit him. Now, crowds in Luke's gospel is going to have a variety of meaning. 
Some of the crowds come out so they want to be healed. We have some crowds that come out so they want to learn. They, they want to hear what, what this Christ guy or, or this Jesus guy has to say. Not necessarily saying he's the Messiah, not really affirming that as an act of faith, but they want to know who is this Jesus. What does he have to say? Some come to watch, right? Want to be spectators. Uh, crazy things happen when people get together with this Christ. I want to see something crazy. I want to see something spectacular. And so they're spectators. Others are, are those who are just setting a stage to trap Christ, where we see with the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel. So the crowds are divided along those lines. So crowds coming out does not necessarily mean these are people who affirm the ministry of Christ and John the Baptist. This just means it's a group of people gathering together, and there's a mix that, that we find that, that's going on. So we would think that if John the Baptist is calling these crowds, that John the Baptist would have a way of persuading these people, right? We think of John the Baptist doing something like winning friends and influencing people. John the Baptist does not do any such thing. I always marvel at how John starts his sermon. That he goes out there and he says, you brood of vipers. I mean, this isn't complimentary. I, I don't think you need to be in this particular culture to understand this is not flattering language. What he's saying is you are tied to a family of snakes. You are a serpent people. You are people who have turned away from the living God. That's not nice. He's saying this to the Israelites who are coming out to see him. And he's saying, you are not aligned with the children of Abraham. You are aligned with Satan's seed. I mean, let that resonate for a second. If somebody came, filled this pulpit, and said to the church, you guys are all Satan's seed. I mean, would you be flattered by that? Would you be comforted? Would you say, wow, this is, this is great stuff? But we find what, what John means by this. He's asking them who warned them to flee from the wrath to come. So as John is saying this, he understands that national Israel is having its date where it's done. So he rightly does understand that nature of Christ's mission. Now he's going to wrestle with the reality of uh, the true full judgment coming and John wrestling with this. But what he clearly understands is God's wrath is about to be displayed. Now when he turns to the children of Abraham and he warns them, he says, don't say that we have Abraham as our father. Don't say we have the prophets. But he gives him this warning that the Lord is the one who can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. Now most likely, as commentators speculate, that John's preaching in Aramaic. And so what's happening here is that there tends to be a, a pun where you have Beniah and Abaniah for son, stone going on here. And so as they hear this, they're understanding the reality of what's happening, that stone uh, where we have, uh, you know, we have son, Benaiah, stone, Ananiah going on here, that as they hear this, they're thinking, okay, so son, stone, what, what are you talking about? What John wants them to understand is that it's by the recreative spiritual power of God that he raises up his children. And the warning for the Israelites 
is that the axe is laid at the root, right? Now, this is a, a, a pretty painful metaphor. We have this metaphor with a line of, of David and Isaiah, the stump of Jesse, but there's a shoot that comes out of the stump, right? So the, the tree's cut down, but it's the assurance that Isaiah gives that the whole family line is not finished. And so this, this stump that's presented here with, with the axe being laid at the root, this is saying that this stump is not going to have any life. So this means that, that the significance of Israel, that, that they have enjoyed their uniqueness in the land, it's not going to endure. It's not going to last. He goes on now to speak of even fire. And he says that basically as the axe is laid at the root, we have now this tree that doesn't bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's qualified in verse 17 as an unquenchable fire. Uh, this is the metaphor that Christ uses with Gehenna, the garbage dump that continues to burn. It's that visible presentation of what Isaiah says where he speaks of where the worm never dies. Uh, we have Malachi 4 verse 1, uh, where the Lord's fire comes upon the evildoers and the arrogant are consumed. So right here, as he continues on, th this is not a happy sermon. This is not turning to the people of Israel and say, hey, you're fine. You're going to get relief from Rome. In fact, he's saying it's not Rome that's your fundamental problem. It's your standing before the Lord in your spiritual state that's a fundamental problem. And so people come out, and, and obviously, you know, somebody says this stuff, you start thinking, wow, as I'm looking within myself, this is pretty serious. I, I don't know what to do. So you have these people come out and say, well, what, what do I do? Well, the first thing he says, well, care for the poor. And again, when we think about this declaration of caring for the poor, these are individuals who are care carelessly and, and easily discarded. You can just overlook them, go about your business, and just not really worry about it. And here, the, the, the poor become the, it's not necessarily just a metaphor. Obviously, we gotta care for the poor, but it becomes this, this metaphor for those who are truly broken, those who are spiritually worn down as Bailey uh, goes through the nature of poor in, in the gospel. And so it's understanding, truly sharing one another's burdens, caring for those who are poor. He says then they share their two tunics, share their food, make sure that these individuals are not just overlooked and forgotten. On the image of God, we find our identity and hope in Christ. We have the tax collectors. Now, when you look at the history of the tax collectors, you can understand why these are seen as the unclean or the sinners of sinners or the scum of the earth, if you really get someone who's honest about them. Because if you look at the history of the tax collectors, they most likely knew the tax bill, and Rome didn't know the tax bill. So most of the time, Rome would depend on the tax collectors to set the tax bill. So you can understand what these guys would do. You tell Rome one number, you tell individuals another number, right? So when you collect your taxes, you're collecting from your fellow um, countrymen, right? I mean, these are Jewish tax collectors, right? These are the Israelites as they're receiving these exhortations. So these are Jewish individuals coming out, exploiting their own family, exploiting their own people. 
And so you can understand why there is an animosity towards the tax collectors. And so John says, fine, you want to work for Rome? You want to collect taxes? Give honest tax bills. Don't lie about it. Don't exploit. Now the soldiers, there's some debate on this. Uh, some say that these soldiers were probably soldiers that, that the Jewish individuals would have recruited or may have sworn some allegiance to Rome as soldiers, but their priority would have been more like tax police, so they would have gone around with the tax collectors. Now, the implication of what John's saying here matches what uh, my New Testament professor, Stephen Ball, reminded us, uh, that the mafia culture doesn't grow out of thin air that you can understand when you have these rather large men going around with tax collectors and telling you that it'd really be a shame if your windows were broken tomorrow or really be a shame if your business was burned down tomorrow. So maybe you want to pay the higher tax bill and we can make sure that the building stands uh, for another day. So you can understand how if you're smart, you're going to pay the bigger bill because you don't want this guy to come in and tear down your place because after all, who's Rome going to believe? The tax collector or you? So John's saying, don't exploit people. Don't, make, uh, don't stand behind the tax collectors and exploit those who uh, truly uh, desire to live at peace. And be honest, is what he's basically saying. Conduct yourself with integrity. And so he's saying, understand, your call is to live your life before the face of God. So John gives these general exhortations, which again, it's pretty scary. You're talking to guys who have probably beaten up and persuaded a lot of people physically, uh, to put it delicately, and John's standing here uh, preaching against this. And so you can understand, now the, the crowd begins to wonder, could this be the Messiah? Is this a Christ? So we find in verses 15 through 18, John laying out the clear priority of who he is. So here we, we have these people wondering, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Well, John says, I, I want to be very clear here. I'm the one who baptizes with water. He's the one who baptizes with fire. Now, this is where we start getting this concept of fire. Up to this point, prior to this, fire wasn't necessarily something that was positive. But Christ baptizing with fire is beginning to anticipate the Pentecost event where you have the Spirit sent out as a confirmation work of Christ's ministry and his resurrection power. And so there's an understanding now that this, this fire isn't just being cast into eternal judgment, but this fire is also the eternal power of heaven, the Holy Spirit that's sent out, orienting us as a people seated with Christ and oriented to the heavenly nature of our lives and who we are in our Lord and Redeemer. And so as we hear this, they say, well, why, why is this so urgent then? And, and, and what are you saying? Well, as John goes on in verse 17, he says, his winnowing fork is at hand. So here you have John perceiving his ministry to be something with an absolute urgency. The final judgment is right here. Now we're going to find in Luke's gospel that this is right and wrong, Right? Uh, it is true that Christ is going to endure the final judgment on the cross. Not symbolically, but actually. And as Christ endures the final judgment on the cross, he will be raised to life and sent out 
that cleansing spirit. But the identity for the people of God and for the community and for the church as it goes out, are they a people who identify Christ as a Messiah, the savior of their sins, or is Christ a guru? Is Christ a teacher? Is Christ a magic show? Is Christ something else? And so the call here that John is giving is urgent for everyone. Who do you say the Christ is? Is he your redeemer or is he someone else? Now, when we notice this metaphor that John uses in terms of his identity, he says, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. Another thing that, that strikes me when, when you look at this in the context of the gospel, you brood of vipers, right? I mean, the, the man has incredible boldness. Crowds come out, and they haven't scattered at that point, but they actually come to him and ask him further questions. So he's, he's got this credibility. But then he stands up and he says, listen, don't look to me for your life. I'm merely the messenger. I'm telling you about the Christ. I don't give life. I'm preaching the word to embrace the Christ. When he says he's not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals, you, you, you got to understand this. Bailey goes, goes through this metaphor a little bit. And, and the metaphor is basically you have a rabbi who would have a, a, a protege. The protege obviously is not above the rabbi, but he's below the rabbi. He's being mentored. He's being taught. But even tasks for the, the one who's being instructed and, and mentored by the rabbi, is not one who's going to untie the sandals. It's not because he's unworthy, but it's because he's above that task. That's a lowly slave's job. A self-respecting student mentored by a rabbi would not even think of doing such a task. It would be a joke to present such a thing. John the Baptist is saying, here I am as a messenger of the Messiah, and I'm not even worthy to do the unworthy task of a servant, of untying his sandals. So John is calling to their attention the reality and significance of Christ. And as we pointed out last week, it's something that's rather marvelous. Because Christ is so ordinary in terms of how he appears to, to people, right? They don't think of him as a God-man. His parents leave him behind. His, his mom is, is surprised that he's over in the temple interacting with the teachers of, of Israel. And Christ says, well, didn't you think this would be the first place you should look? <laughs> I got a mission. I'm in my father's house. What's surprising about this? Right? And so you understand how ordinary Christ is in terms of the God-man. And as John is presenting this, he's setting the stage for the crowds of saying, don't be taken back by the God-man. Don't give in to your preconceptions of what you have for a Messiah. Bow the knee to the true Messiah and find your life in him. As John goes on with the many exhortations, the implication is, yes, as he's preaching the gospel, he's exhorting them to live out the gospel, to live in light of it, and to find their lives in the true Christ. Again, it's that reminder. It's not about what I say about Christ or what John even believes about Christ. What I think or what I believe does not determine whether Christ is real or not. Christ is real. 
And Christ, as he enters history, is fulfilling his mission. And Christ is the one who truly casts those into eternal fire. And Christ is also the one who confers the eternal fire. This is a call for us that as we hear these words to truly ask ourselves, who do we say this Christ is? Right? This is the urgency of what John is saying. Who do we say this Christ is? The only way to truly have life is to take hold of Christ by faith and to walk in the power of that faith as the Spirit is at work in us and to not rest in any covenantal identity, just in ourselves like what we have with Israel. Abraham's our father. John's saying, God raises up his children. Let us then, as we ask that question of how does the Lord initiate this holy war, we find that he initiates it through a prophet, through the word of God, going out proclaiming the reality of Christ. John himself, as we see in the Gospel account, certainly believes a proper understanding of Christ, probably doesn't have all the ins and outs and, and know it exhaustively, as none of us do. We, we all grow in this. But the call, fundamentally, is that we fundamentally see that our problem's not outside of us. That we don't see the problem as Rome, or we don't see it as a political a platform, or some other problem in this age. The fundamental problem is we have natural hearts that do not love the Lord in and of ourselves. This is a tragic reality, isn't it? We are a fallen people, informed by the fall of Adam. And we obviously come to that point then, well, how do we overcome this? And the power of the Spirit. And this is a thing that we have to understand as a beauty of the gospel. That it's not just that God calls a people unto himself. But God consciously brings his people unto himself. And this is a rather remarkable thing that we are here because God wants us to be here. We are his children because God wants us to be his children. So this is not a call then to challenge the boundaries of grace. I, I hope you don't hear that. It's a call for us to truly live in the joy of the kingdom. We are a redeemed people sojourning together. With the call of the gospel that goes forth, that truly is an urgent call. Calling the peoples to turn unto the living God. Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean. Finding their cleansing in the true fire baptism of Christ Jesus as John's presenting it. And to be recipients and to live and walk in the power of the Spirit. As we sojourn under the sun, and as the Apostle Paul exhorts the church, as a community of saints set apart unto the Lord, let us then be a people where we consciously see ourselves as set apart unto the Lord, seeking to live out the gospel of Christ, knowing that we are born from above in the power of the Spirit, that as we take hold of Christ by faith, let us then continually die to self as John preaches this repentance, turning from self, turning unto the Lord, and continually conforming unto his name as the people have been set apart as his redeemed people. 
a people who are being shaped and molded in the midst of the wilderness. Let us continue then to sojourn under the sun in that confidence as his redeemed. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, We would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.